Thank you so much for coming this morning and being with us. This is usually the week where I get to make snide remarks about how nobody's here. They all left on vacation and didn't invite Diane and I. But thank you for, I guess, not going on vacation and being with us this morning. Today's message falls into the category of, can we talk? I'm not 100% sure. I started to say where we're going this morning. I think I know where we're going, but I don't know that I know fully the application of what we're talking about today. We're coming near the end of a series of messages that we're calling Fantastic. Dictionary.com defines fantastic as conceived by an unrestrained imagination, odd and remarkable, bizarre, grotesque, incredibly great, extreme, exorbitant. And we've said for a few weeks, this is a perfect definition of the life and ministry of Jesus. So what we said that we were going to do is we would take a series of the most incredible Jesus stories, the ones that at least I read, I hope most of you don't, but at least I read and when I'm at my worst, I say, what? That can't have happened exactly like that. And yet, we believe it did, and and we said that during this series, we were going to take these stories very, very seriously. As historical fact, we were going to rub off all the Sunday school sheen, and we were going to look at them just as historical incidences. And we have tried to do so, and we will do so again this morning with an incident that is equally remarkable to the others that we have gone over. So let me give you a little survey of what we'll do this morning. We'll read it. And then we'll talk about this incident a little bit. We'll have a couple of big picture observations. They'll really amount to one observation. And then we'll have a a couple of kind of application points that will really amount to one application point. Toward the end of the process, I'm going to read from an email that I got a few weeks ago. I think it will be challenging. It was for me. And it also kind of gives some direction to some of what we've been talking about for the last few weeks. I warn you, we're not going to leave this morning with as much direction as I'd like to give to this. I've heard it said that you can't lead anyone where you haven't been yourself, so I want to admit up front, I'm going to take us this morning to a place beyond my understanding and my experience. And I also believe that we're going to look today at what is the single most amazing verse in the entire Bible at least to me. So with that as an intro, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray today that you would stir hearts that are comfortable. I pray that you would awaken hearts and minds that are asleep or dead. God, I pray that you would comfort those of us who are in pain, and heal those of us who are in need. Draw us near and give us a new, richer, deeper perspective on Jesus, on how fantastic he was. We prepare our hearts right now to fall down and worship him. We bring this morning, Lord, all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of you. And 
Father, I don't believe that any of us are here today by accident. So I pray that you would use this time for your purposes in our lives. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Okay, let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's Word, and we're going to read Matthew 14. So if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn to Matthew 14. I want you to know that I'm not making this story up. And uh, if you have a Bible app, you can go to Matthew and then chapter 14, and I'm going to be reading verses 22 through the end of the chapter. And you may get it as soon as I read it, but in this section, there is, to me, the single most amazing verse in the entire Bible. So here we go. Matthew chapter 14, another fantastic incident in the life and ministry of Jesus. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. I should mention that we missed a Sunday and we did not get to cover one of the incidences that I wanted to cover in this series, which was Jesus feeding 5,000 people from one little boy's lunch. That incident has just happened, and Jesus needs a break. So he tells his disciples to get in the boat, sends them out onto the lake, and he spends some time with the Father. After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Pause for dramatic effect. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, (laughs) they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it's me. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come on, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. That is amazing. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? You of little faith, you could only walk ten feet on the water. How dare you have so little faith in me? (laughs) You could only step out of the boat, walk on a lake for ten feet. Peter. Shame on you. (laughs) What? (laughs) And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. You may be seated. There's nothing unusual about taking a walk. I do it all the time, so do you. When we leave here today, I'll take a walk out to the car. Sometimes I have time early in the morning or late in the afternoon. I take a walk around the neighborhood. I've been known to walk for 45 minutes, just walking around, just walking. 
I've been known to walk 45 minutes at a brisk pace. I can cover three miles, maybe more, 45 minutes out walking. I bet you've done the same thing. I've walked around malls. I've walked up hills and down hills. I've walked city streets. I've walked the Appalachian Trail, not the whole thing, but different parts of it at various places and times. Nothing unusual about taking a walk unless you're doing it on water. Okay, I actually Googled this week to see if I could find out. I got a science book to see if I could find out why human beings cannot walk on water physically. And I intended this morning to amaze and dazzle you and flash up a bunch of equations. Honestly, it was way too complicated (laughs) for me to figure out, but just take my word for it, you can't walk on water. And it's very complicated, the physics of it. I did find, like, answers.com, where someone gave a really, really stripped-down, simple explanation, and then I simplified that to something like this. Small things, like individual molecules, have a tendency to stick to one another. It's one of the properties of molecules at the microscopic level. So individual molecules in a liquid are attracted to each other. And they try to stay as close to one another as possible. They have, in effect, a kind of magnetic pull toward one another. This creates what's called the surface tension of water. So water very much wants to stay together in as close a space as possible. That's why you pour water on your kitchen counter and it beads up because water attracts to itself. In fact, it seems like water does this more so and more consistently and with a little more power than other liquids. The surface of water does not want to be broken. It wants to stay together. This is why when you throw a paper clip on a body of water, it floats because the surface tension is greater. The pressure of the surface tension and the molecules of the water sticking together. Am I losing you? That's stronger by far than the the gravitational effect of the weight of a paper clip pushing down on the water. However, and my case and most of yours, the force exerted by our weight concentrated in a relatively small area is far greater than the force of the surface tension of water. The surface tension of water explains why, again, this is also complicated. I tried to figure this out, and this was way beyond me, but it it explains partly why boats float. You know, boats float in part because the weight is distributed over a larger area. So at any given point, the surface tension is greater than the the weight on that given point in the water. But in my case and your case, we are applying an awful lot of pressure due to the gravitational pull on us and the attraction to the earth. We're exerting an awful lot of pressure on one little spot of water. So we displace the water and we essentially break the water apart. Why in the world are we talking about this, Ed? (laughs) Because we've just read a story that recounts Jesus walking on water. And we're trying to take these stories seriously. (laughs) All right. Certainly, you can reject this story. But if you do... I know most of you don't. Most of you are in in the place in your own journey with him where you try your best to make sense of this and to believe this. But there are a few of you who read stories like this and that's, that's one of those Bible things and you dismiss it. You can reject it. But if you do, 
If you treat this honestly, I think you have to explain it. Where would a story like this come from? And that question is more difficult to answer reasonably than you might imagine. In fact, when you try to answer that question reasonably, it will end up, for many of you, bolstering your faith. I mean, perhaps it's a trick. If you look this up on YouTube, Walking on Water, there is a magician who explains the walking on water trick. And so he's at a pool, and he's got all kind of what he calls innocent bystanders, and they're swimming around in the pool, and the magician comes, he does all of his magician stuff, you know, he's whatever, and he gets to the edge of the pool, and then he steps in, and he acts like he's losing his balance, and then he walks across the pool, and the camera's showing all kind of different angles, and the bystanders are swimming underneath him as he's, and they're, of course, you know they're not bystanders as soon as you see them, because they're all looking at him like, huh, and I mean, if he were walking on water, we'd be freaking out, but he walks all the way across the pool. And then they say, here's how it's done, and they show you the camera angles. They never really show from the right direction. They've just built, it's incredibly disappointing, they've built a large, very thick plastic plexiglass platform all the way across the pool, and he's just walking across the plexiglass platform. And, you know, you show the camera angle exactly right, and you, you can't tell that it's plexiglass. It, it looks like it's water, but then they show camera angles from directly above it or right at water level, and oh, it's just a huge plexiglass platform. Perhaps Jesus is performing a trick, but of course, it's very unlikely Jesus is performing a trick, and you're never going to read anyone who really believes that Jesus is performing a trick, because this is the middle of a lake, and plexiglass hadn't even been invented yet, and you know, it, it doesn't appear that he's got any kind of special shoes. In fact, it's several thousand years later, and we still haven't figured that trick out very well. So this is not a trick, but more likely, and what most people will suggest, is perhaps this is just mythology. It developed around the life and ministry of Jesus, and again, if if you want to reject this, that's probably your best option. But you need to know there's some problems with suggesting that this is mythology. First of all, even if Matthew didn't write this, which some people don't think he did, some people believe that people who followed Matthew, Matthew's students actually compiled and wrote these stories, and then they were collated and edited even a generation after that. But even that, it's very early for this kind of mythology to have developed around a real historical figure and real historical incidences. Besides, these people don't appear to be writing myth. As I've said before, they are intending, it's clear, they're intending to write history. There are no mythical creatures here. There are no half-lions, half-people. There are no fire-breathing dragons. There's nothing which we would call magic in its purest sense in the text. Clearly, these people are intending to write history. So, If you reject these stories, just know you've got a difficult task figuring out where a story like this came from. Unless it's real. And maybe it's real. And if it's real, then Jesus is uniquely, unimaginably, incredibly fantastic. The fantasticality of this is hard to imagine. And we're going to attach another word to this this morning. We've done this before at Gateways. For those of you who have been part of Gateway for a while, this will be a little bit of a review. But one of the most important 
Bible words in both the Old and the New Testament is the concept holy. And holy, the secondary definition of holy is to be morally pure, is to be unadulterated in goodness and ethics and morals, is to be morally perfect. The primary definition of holy is simply set apart, unique, other than, different. We've consistently here at Gateway described it like this. Imagine a giant category over here, including everything known to us. Rocks and trees and skin and plastic and plexiglass and fabric and mark and everything you can think of. Sound boards and cloth and computers and air and space and molecules and dark matter and stars and galaxies. And all of that is in a category. It's a really big, long category with lots of subcategories, but it's all here in one category. And then over here, in a completely separate category, is holy. And this is where God is. In the holy category, completely different. We've said before here at Gateway that the New Testament story that highlights this aspect of Jesus maybe more than any other, is another one of Jesus' interactions with nature itself. Jesus is on a boat with his disciples again, on the lake with his disciples again, and the sea is in turmoil. Remember, he's with a group of professional fishermen, so they know when they're in trouble. These men have spent their life on the Sea of Galilee, and they know these storms, they know they come up quickly. Sometimes they can manage them, but they also know that sometimes these storms get out of control and people lose their lives and they are in one such storm. Jesus is asleep in the boat and the disciples go to him. Uh, the disciples are afraid, of course. They think they may lose their lives. And they go, they wake Jesus up and, you know, something like, don't you care? Or, and Jesus gets up and he... I envision him going to the stern of the boat, although it was probably a very small boat. Jesus goes to the stern of the boat and he yells out, quiet, be still, and the storm stops. And Jesus' command. <laughs> this is one of these little details that makes me believe these stories. And then in Matthew's account, he uses a, a stronger word for fear. Now the disciples are really afraid. And they ask what kind of man is this? I mean, what category do we put that in? We know rabbis. I mean, he's the best rabbi ever. But we understand rabbiism. And we've seen healers. I mean, he's the most incredible healer. But we've seen healers before. We've seen teachers. We've seen spiritual gurus. I mean, this guruism is as deep and epic as any guruism we've seen. But we've seen gurus before. But what kind of man does that? What category do we put that in? Well, I think the category we put it in is holy. And that's what we have here. So this is something completely different. There's a guy taking a stroll on the lake. He's walking on water. He's holy. This is why the storm calms down. They take him into the boat and they worship him. Look, if you want to doubt your faith, if you want to doubt him, he's big. Feel free to do so. Just be honest with him about it. 
But don't let anybody convince you of something silly like, you know, you guys have misunderstood Jesus. The Bible never uses the word Trinity. Of course the Bible doesn't use the word Trinity. These guys are figuring it all out, but when they see him walking on water, when he gets into the boat, they do the only thing they can. They do what you do to God. They worship him. And what we recognize, of course, is that nothing is beyond Jesus' power. So let me make a first observation. Observation number one, we're going to make two. Observation number one, there's always hope when we place our trust in God. Nothing is beyond His power, His ability, or the scope of His concern. There's always hope when we place our trust in God, no matter what obstacles we're facing. God's rule and God's reign extends over our hearts and minds over our physical bodies as we've seen in the story, the dramatic story of, if you're new with us, we covered an incident when Jesus is on his way to heal a young girl. A woman reaches out and touches him in a crowd and he feels, weirdly, he feels power go out of him. And he looks at the crowd and he says, who touched me? And the disciples say, well, they're like, Lots of people here touching you, Jesus. What are you talking about? And Jesus says, yes, but power went out of me. Now, by this point, they've got to be used to Jesus' weirdness, but this is a little too weird. What? Yeah, power went out of me, and a woman realizes that something's happened because she's been healed. She's been bleeding for 12 years, and now her bleeding has stopped. So she says, I think it was me, Jesus says, hey, your faith has healed you. In the meantime, the girl he's going to heal has died. So Jesus goes into the village and resurrects her from the dead. No matter what obstacle we're facing, God's rule and reign extends over our hearts and our minds, over our physical bodies, and over the laws of nature itself. God's rule and reign extends over the laws of nature itself. So, listen, in this context... I think it would be fair for us to define faith as understanding that God can do anything and believing that he can do anything and then putting our hope in him. Putting our hope in him and his power. So we don't put our hope in our health. We don't put our hope in our finances. We don't put our hope in our children. But we put our hope in him, knowing that his power covers every aspect of our lives. So if you want a period here, if you're looking for an application, I think the application here is to, one, be amazed at Jesus, and two, to believe that he's involved, that if he's involved, then anything is possible. So I think the application for you and I, number one, it begins with this, be amazed at Jesus. And I know that I'm talking to people who, uh, some of you have been trying to do this walk this business of being a Christian for for a number of years. Some of you five, six years, some of you 20 or 30 years. And we can lose the luster. But this story is a reminder that you and I need to be amazed at Jesus. Number two, to believe that if Jesus is involved in anything, it's possible. Anything is possible. A marriage can be saved. uh, Physical circumstances can be changed. Cancer can be healed. Someone's heart can be completely altered if Jesus is involved. Okay, so now for the second part of our topic this morning. 
Let's look at the most amazing sentence in the entire Bible. And I'm going to again read from chapter 14, verses 28 and 29. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, Jesus said. Then Peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. I'll say that again. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on water, and came toward Jesus. Peter walks on water. Okay, you can walk. I've walked many times. I walked around my neighborhood. I've got to get to my car after service today. I've got to walk from here across the parking lot out to my car. I've walked around malls. I've walked up hills and down hills. I've walked parts of the Appalachian Trail. But I have never walked on water. And this isn't Jesus. This is Peter. This is, in effect, you and me. What does it mean for us that Peter walked on water? Okay, the frustrating part about my working through this passage this week and for you and I this morning is all I can do for us is open that question up. And I hope you'll talk about it over lunch with somebody and all week long. What does it mean for us that Peter walked on water? I remember a couple of years ago, I've got to be honest, first of all, I remember a few years ago, a pretty famous minister in the Virginia Beach area had a television ministry, and he went on television and said that he believed that a hurricane had missed Virginia Beach because he had prayed about it. And that may be so. That really may be so. The problem with that was, of course, it destroyed New Jersey. So how did New Jersey feel after he had prayed and it had left them? This is complicated. I don't know. I do know that if Jesus is involved, anything is possible. I want to read the rest of the passage that John read for us this morning during our worship time from John chapter 14. I'm going to start with the beginning, and I'm going to read through verse 14 because there's a reference that Jesus makes in verse 12 that you've got to hear. So Jesus, this is toward the end of his life. He says to his disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. He's preparing them both for now and for the future. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and take you to be with me. You'll also be the place where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas says to him, Lord, look, I'm completely confused. We don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I'm the way, Thomas. And the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Incredible and amazing claim and very, very exclusive, by the way. And then he explains that, look, if you really knew me, you would know my Father. From now on, you do know him, and you've seen him because you've seen me. Philip answered, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Listen to how incredible that is. Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my words, rather it's the Father living in me who is doing his work. 
Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. And now verse 12. I'll tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. Hello? He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. He will do greater things than I have done because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Observation number two. The power that was available to and through Jesus is now available to and through us. You know, honestly, you guys, in order for us to really get that, God has to change our lives. God has to change our perspective. I mean, if we really believed that, you and I would be standing and shouting and running around the room. The power that was available in and through Jesus is now available in and through us. So as I said, I got an email a couple of weeks ago from uh, someone. It was uh, beautifully written and very challenging. I want to read you some of this email. I feel like they said, in the March 8th sermon, you stopped short of a breakthrough moment, so I decided to share some of my thoughts with you. You started a series on the fantastic Jesus. Today, this is what I heard. Quote, Jesus was unpredictable and not normal by society standards. I don't know that I said literally that, but not a bad summary. Second quote, if the power of God is real, shouldn't there be a reaction when we experience it? I did say that. And I talked about some of the reactions that you and I have had. Feeling overwhelmed. Sometimes there are tears. I've seen people shake when the power of God comes on them. Third quote, it will affect us emotionally and spiritually, end quote. They go on. You discussed one possible human reaction to this. Quote, I believe it. Why don't I see it more? And then you concluded with your own personal plea. So let me say again, tee it up again for those of you who weren't here. I talked about this dramatic series of spiritual awakening, revival, wild stuff that was happening a number of years ago in Toronto, Canada, at a church near the airport in Toronto, Canada. I used to pray with a group. This was during the years when Diane and I and the boys lived in Boston. And I used to pray with a group of pastors in the Boston area, and several of those pastors went up to this church in Toronto to experience what Time Magazine called the Toronto Blessing. So they went up, a couple of people got knocked out in the service. Now, you should know that in these services, and these services were happening every night for weeks, eventually people literally from around the world were flying into Toronto to experience the Toronto Blessing. Amongst this spiritual awakening, there were also people who were, in fact, it was a regular feature of this awakening. People were displaying all kinds of physical responses, supposedly to God's power, including they were making animal noises, and people were passing out, and there was ongoing laughter, supposedly being filled with the joy of the Lord. So one of the guys that went up with this group of pastors from Boston, are you, are you with me? One of the guys that went up to experience this was a Pentecostal pastor. And I said a few weeks ago, he was a very unusual Pentecostal pastor. He was a Pentecostal pastor. I'm talking full-blown Pentecostals. Shouting and screaming and waving their arms. Pentecostal pastor 
who also had a Ph.D. in history, not church history, history, from Harvard. Those two things, Pentecostal pastor, Ph.D. from Harvard, don't often go together. And I really liked him, so he and I had become friends, and he was going with the group to Toronto. So I pulled him aside, and I said, Eric, look, I need you to tell me what happened after he got back. I mean, explain this to me. Is all of that stuff God? And I said a few weeks ago, Eric said to me, what it became for me mind-blowing. Eric said, you know, honestly, as I looked around at everything, I thought about 25% of it was God. I thought the rest of it was just emotion and people getting carried away and caught up. And my first response was, yes, you know, a full-blown Pentecostal has completely affirmed my perception. I agree 100%. And then he blew my mind when he said, hey, but you know what? 25% is amazing because in my service, it's usually only about 10% Holy Spirit. You know, my folks spend most of their time and energy making lists on what they're going to do that afternoon and what groceries they need. So most of what happens among us is not the Holy Spirit. And I was like, oh my gosh, he's right. So then I looked at us plaintively and I said, let's go for the 25%. Are you with me? This person continues. Then you concluded with your personal plea. I want to unleash the 25%. Do you want to experience this? (sighs) The congregation treated the question as rhetorical. Some cheered, but I was disappointed because you never told us how to experience this or even made a direct charge to pursue it. I've grown up with and lived my whole life in churches that were afraid to experience the real power of God. In analyzing the fantastic things Jesus did, Christians miss the much bigger point that we are called to be fantastic in the same provocative and shocking way. If Jesus was unpredictable and not normal, how could a Christian living by the power of the Holy Spirit be predictable and normal? If people experience me as predictable and normal, why would I expect them to have any reaction toward God? Predictable and normal equals safe. Safe is status quo, and people don't change when confronted with the status quo. There's nothing safe about Jesus or the early church. I want to say that again. There's nothing safe about Jesus or the early church. Why would anyone ever choose God when they see a church that looks no different from the world around them? The early church shocked people with the messy slash painful slash disruptive transforming work of the Holy Spirit. And they add, it wasn't all healing. We want signs just like the early Jews, but if people come to Gateway and see abjectly humble people who have been or are being radically transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. They won't ask for signs of healed cancer, and they won't have any problem that believing that Jesus could raise the dead. In fact, I believe the overriding mission of the church is to be so infused by the Holy Spirit that we are disruptive and shocking to the world around us. And all God's people said? But God's people said it a little more energetically. You also said Sunday, quote, Sometimes we consciously hold back, end quote. In my personal experience, this person said, I hold back because in a deep part of me, I'm afraid of what I'll find if I go all in. And all God's people said, (laughs) me too. This is even more true of almost every church I've ever attended. And all God's people said, in conclusion, this is me now. (laughs) 
we've left the email. In conclusion, I think the application here is, one, be amazed at Jesus. I mean, if you saw a guy walking on water, I don't think you would have any problem forgetting about your concerns. Maybe just for a few minutes, but you would not have any concerns about what you were going to do the rest of the day. If you saw a guy walking on water, defying the laws of physics, surface tension somehow overcome. You know, one way that you can walk on water, some animals accomplish walking on water by doing it so quickly. So it accomplishes the same thing as, again, apologies, I don't understand the physics, but it accomplishes the same thing as distributing the weight. It's your... You know, the technical term is hydroplaning, and you're, I don't understand it. But anyway, there are lizards that can walk on water by moving so quickly across the surface of a stream that they, in effect, don't apply too much gravitational force to any one spot. Gravity is not larger than, greater than the surface. Anyway, humans could do this. We could actually do that. We could hydroplane. We could, in effect, like a rock, we could skim across the surface of water if we could run 77 miles an hour. Hussein Bolt, at his fastest, runs 23 miles an hour. I don't think any of you are faster than he is. We need to be amazed at Jesus. That's where this starts. And those of you who have lost that wonder, I've been praying for you and I that we would rediscover the wonder of Jesus. Number two, we need to believe that if Jesus is involved in anything that's possible in and through us, anything, if Jesus is involved. Number three, we need to go all in on that belief. You and I, we need to go all in on that belief. Okay, so what does that mean? I don't know. But let's be caught finding out. Let's let that be our adventure together, Gateway. Let's be caught finding out what it means to go all in on that belief. I don't care if you've been doing this for 34 years and you've heard this before. I don't care. Stop the cynicism. (laughs) That's not faith. Let's go all in on this belief. Let's believe that God can do anything. We've been talking for, I'm off script now, but we've been talking for a number of months about, again, if you're our guest today, thanks so much for coming. We're really glad to have you. We're about to enter into an exciting period in the life and history of Gateway. We're going to break ground on a new facility, on a piece of property, just as you go out Gum Spring Road out toward 50. And without question, that's going to dramatically raise the profile of Gateway Community Church. We have a strong sense that there will be folks that will wander into us and be attracted to us, and we just have got to get a lot better at doing what it is that we do as a church so that we can welcome them in and that we can grow them up and that we can nurture them and care for them. And all that's awesome stuff. And I'm really excited about it, and you and I really need to be in prayer about that, but let's understand that all of that stuff exists kind of at the normal, predictable level. Those of you who are familiar with the New Testament, you know that there was a 
moment in history after Jesus had left, the disciples were confused, Jesus had died, and then they saw him resurrected. And for them, I'm sure they thought, oh my gosh, history has just come to an end. This is awesome. The whole deal is all coming together right now. Way to go, Jesus. I get it now. I get who you are. You are like God squeezed into human skin. Let's go. Let's knock out the Romans. We don't even know who the Chinese are, but let's knock them out too, and let's just let's, let's rule and reign right now. And Jesus says, no, not yet. There's a whole lot of stuff coming after this. What I want you to do is go wait, because I'm going to disappear. What do you mean you're going to disappear? I'm going away. I've got to go away in order for this incredible, extra special manifestation of God's presence to come in you. So that's all going to happen, so just go wait. And like everything Jesus says, they're thoroughly confused, I'm convinced. And Jesus goes away. So they go to this room and they just wait. They don't know what they're doing and suddenly God's Spirit falls on them and all kind of incredible stuff starts happening among them. And they're filled with His joy and with His presence and they go running out in the street. It's the middle of the day, people think they're drunk. And a large crowd gathers, and Peter stands up and he says, let me have your attention, wait, 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 listen. And here's what's incredible. We're told, we don't know how many, we don't know the specifics, but there are a lot of Jews there that speak a lot of different languages, and somehow they're all hearing this in their own language. Hey, these people are not drunk. No, God's presence has happened here in an incredible, unique way. It was talked about in the Old Testament. You've read about it in this Old Testament passage in Joel. And, and here's what it says. Is it really awesome? And this is like, all of this is happening, and this is happening because Jesus. And, and some of you are here, and he died. We saw him. He's resurrected, and we crucified him. But it doesn't matter. God overcame all of that, and he's, he's, he's inviting us in in a new way. Come on. 3,000 people. They didn't build a new building. There was no marketing campaign. 3,000 people in one day. Let's figure out how to be amazed at Jesus. Let's open our hearts to the belief that if He's involved in anything as possible, in and through us, let's go all in on that belief.